millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Pitt is to Eddington what London is to Paddington. Thus saith George Canning in the Oracle. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Horniman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knackered. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr. Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, it was my cultural anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people. You link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living Boris here. Boris Johnson. He weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, December the 14th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, we are at Senate House in Bloomsbury today. We're at the Museum of Writing here at the University of London site. With me, a large panel. Mark Duncan is the Artistic Director of Cornucopia Theatre Company. He's also a mime artist and very much involved in community theatre around town. Gareth Edwards, who, who also trades as John Bull, and we'll be alternating between those names. He's the personification of Englishness, I tell you. Uh, and he's a transport journalist, and he's the editor of London Reconnections, which covers transport topics in and around London. Tom Miles is project coordinator for the Museum of Writing. His work is digitising and cataloguing the first block of items, which are set to go live in early 2013. He's got a background in digitisation of a whole range of heritage projects. And last but not least, Alan Cole is the original collector of the uh, collection here at the Museum of Writing. He started in, well, this this blows my mind, in 1955 as a private collector. And uh, it's, it's much more recently that the collection's been taken on by the museum here. Hello, you all. Hello. Hello. Let's come to you first of all, Alan. And you, you're, uh, you've got an array of fountain pens in front of you here. Could, could you tell us what started you, first of all, collecting? In 1954, when I was at school... 
Uh, teacher said to me, you'll never get anywhere in life unless people can read your writing. So I went to the British Museum, British Library, looked at all these letters of uh, famous writers, actors, artists, and uh, decided that their writing was no more legible than mine. Teachers knew absolutely nothing, um, but that got me interested. The spark was ignited. And it's manifested itself how? Uh, well, finished up with over 100,000 items dating from about 6,000 BC to the present date for examples of writing, writing equipment, materials. Uh, my head nearly fell off. Uh, 6,000 BC? Yes, there's something uh, called embryo writing that was written on... Uh, there's really shapes and symbols on um, stones from, the, from southwestern France. We have been visiting a number of collections in recent weeks, including the Wellcome Collection, the Horniman Collection, and these are very much centred around individual figures who've started to gather things together. And then eventually, we were saying at the Horniman last week that uh, the Horniman really exists as a museum because Mrs Horniman got fed up with all the stuff in the front room. What was the uh, spur for you to move the, uh, uh, the collection over to the museum here? Um the same thing exactly. My wife couldn't couldn't open the cupboard without without letters, without being stabbed by a pen nib or something, and so um, she said, "You've always promised to get rid of this. Isn't it about time you did?" And so, 2010, I donated the collection to the university. Tom Miles, your responsibility is about digitisation. Well, what does that mean in, in practical terms? And we'll come, we'll come to some of the physical artefacts in just a moment. Um, but what, what about the digital side of things? Well, the digital process really is just photographing the objects and getting as good a view as you possibly can uh, of the object. Um, there are various ways of doing this. I mean, you could you could just video it on a turntable, but I mean, we're we're just sort of taking several shots of various various objects, such as um, ink wells and um, uh, Roman wax tablets and styluses, uh, and then also there will just be for for letters of um, celebrities. There, there will just be a, a scanning of the letters and putting information in about about who, where, what. When and how? Uh, now, that celebrity angle surprises me, actually. I sort of understand uh, the collection of things that, have got, uh, that represent a moment, I suppose, in the development of writing or something like that, some sort of leap forward, perhaps. What about the, the celebrity uh, stuff? We've got a very big collection of Victorian letter writers. And what I find interesting about them is, is they're very... It's, it's not necessarily documentally important, it's it's really can you come over for dinner um and we can send a cab round or you know we would send a send a horse round to pick you up and it they're they're really they're really the you get an idea of the sort of short communication that we would normally say in a text or an email or a phone call Oh, I see. I thought you were talking about, like, uh, Jude Law or something like that. I see. We're, we're going back in time a little bit here. We are going back a, a little bit in town, yes. I mean, we, we, yes, maybe, maybe uh, this is a request for, for people to, to, to send, their, send their writing in. But, um, uh, no, I mean, that's, that's a large part of the, the collection is, is in the, the 19th, 19th century. We'll be giving details on where people can take a look at this uh, sort of stuff later. On Mark Duncan, we've got an array of fountain pens. Where would you like to start? Where would you like Alan to lead us first? The feather is definitely the one that catches my attention, just because it takes me back further in time than any of the art, other artefacts, perhaps even 
to Shakespeare's time. Shakespeare, I can't see any connection with your line of work there. <laughs> All it is that it's a quill, it's been cut, um, so it can, you dip it in the ink and it writes. The quill goes back to at least the 3rd century. Um, some people think the Romans invented it, and it continued well into the 19th. I've never looked properly at a, a cut quill. That is exactly the same shape as the nib of a fountain pen, isn't it? With the um, how does it, is it possible to say <laughs> this is a challenge on radio? Is it possible to say how that works in a very fundamental way? Because they've all got the same sort of shape, except for this uh, black object, which we'll come yeah. to in just a sec. Simply that um, it, when you dip the quill into the ink, it's held in the in the channel. It, it, there's a reservoir of ink that's held in the quill, and when you write, it simply uh, flows down onto the paper. It looks just, as though just exactly the same as um, a pen nib or a fountain pen. It looks as though gravity should empty it all out instantly, yeah. though, doesn't it? But no, it, no, it doesn't. It, because um, it's, there's a slightly sticky surface to it, it does adhere to the ink does, and it just runs down slowly. This uh, little fella here um, is about three, four inches, and it looks like a small black spear that's slightly bent. Basically, it is, I suppose. This one's got a bent handle. Yes, yeah, it should have a straight handle. It's medieval. It's made of bronze. There are four flanges which, when you dip it into the ink, it does hold the ink in the flanges. Um, the simple reason people are looking, instead of the quill, which you have to recut and dip in the ink every so often, something like that, they're looking for a reservoir, for a pen with a re- reservoir. And this is one of the first examples. It didn't catch on because if you write, it either doesn't write at all or it floods. Yes, it's, it's not difficult to imagine uh, being a right mess, to be honest. Yeah. All of those lovely frontispieces pieces, yeah. I can't see coming from that pen. Yeah, absolutely. That's why it didn't, it didn't catch on. And uh, there aren't many of them around because people just got rid of them. Gareth Edwards, any of these catch your attention? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the brass object. It looks, it looks quite threatening, actually. So I quite like, I quite like the look of that one. Something bulletesque about it, yeah. isn't it? Yes, it is. It's um, dates from 1749. It's called a Bion fountain pen it was um, designed by Nicholas Bion in the 17th century it's based on air pressure it's simply a brass tube with a top that um, you unscrews you put the ink in the in the handle if you wish mm-hmm. and there's a brass plummet that goes in which controls the flow of ink so you've got a kind of a valve it's in operation. sort of a valve and the air pressure pushes it down through the valve, and then out through the nib, just like a modern fountain pen. And does that represent a major leap forward in terms of pen technology? Absolutely. It's the first fountain pen. In fact, Bion called it La Plume Sans Fin, which is the endless pen, and uh, which is as, as near as, damn it, to the present fountain pen you can get. And what's, what's really fascinating for me about that um, uh, Bion pen is the nib is a quill and not a um uh, not metal so it's a sort of um it it's a halfway house uh so it's it's controlling the ink uh on, for a quill pen rather than rather than a metal one oh i didn't notice yeah that's beautiful isn't it um we'll come to more pens in a moment i'm just conscious that the um I'm conscious that we need to get our other subject up and running for the day. We are, of course, in the festive season, and uh, we've got a a story about crackers coming up. So, um, Mark Duncan, could we have your first Christmas cracker joke of the day, please? What did the lion say when he saw two hunters in a jeep? Ah, meals on wheels. That's terrible. Shall I do another one? (laughs) How do you keep cool at a football match? 
you stand next to a fan. Just have a moment to let the enormity of that one sink in. Someone cleared a tumbleweed out of yeah, the room that's no. just rolled in. We'll be enjoying more of those Christmas cracker jokes as we go through. Should we, ha- should we have the Christmas cracker story now? Because there's a definite London yeah. connection now. I didn't realise this at all, that the Christmas cracker was invented in London. It was indeed. It was in 1847, and Thomas J. Smith of Goswell Road was struggling to sell his bonbon sweets. So he decided to wrap it um, a bit like a fortune cookie. Um, I don't know if that's where the jokes, <clears throat> if you can call them that, came from. Um, or the puns, rather. And he decided to put a little banger in it, and therefore got bigger. Whether it was his idea to put those little... They didn't have plastic then. I was going to say those little plastic artefacts in. But maybe the paper hats that we all put on, just to seal the silliness and drunkenness often of Christmas, cross our hands over and pull the crackers and tell those terrible jokes that's a lot of effort to sell a sweet really isn't it well it's paid off um so it says and his and his tom smith crackers are still trading it seems well today you can find a memorial fountain to the family which it says is sadly lacking biography and rather dirty so obviously needs a clean and a bit more information but it's in the square's southeast corner so that's the square of... I don't know which square that is. It doesn't say. I think it's Finsbury Square, but I can't remember. I know, I know we did win a, pit, win, a, win a pub quiz with that question a little while back on, a, on kind of a, uh, one of the, the Londonist pub quizzes. So it's, it's obviously come up before. I'm pitying the first person who opened one of these bonbons, having never heard of a cracker before, and they open it and it explodes in their hand. That must have been quite a terrifying experience. <laughs> An exploding sweetie. Yes, let's talk about pantomime. What's, uh, what's happening in pantomime? Uh, does this mean you're doing a pantomime, Mark? I'm not doing a pantomime, as many actors do this time of year. Um, but Cornucopia is leading a pantomime-inspired project um, in Shadwell and Tower Hamlets, where we often have been doing such projects over the last two years. Yes, you're, you're down there all the time these days. What's, yeah. what's going on there? That You've been in adventure playgrounds down <coughs> there performing Shakespeare. Yeah, the last time I was on the show was just before we did Macbeth at Glam's Adventure Playground. You've done, have you not done Romeo and Juliet down there as well? We did do that this summer. But we've also done a couple of other projects. We did an Olympic project in which the young people, uh, we worked in a school. But we worked outside as much as possible. We led to a performance in Victoria Park in which we showed the three London Olympics over the different years in the 20th century and 21st century. And we also did a trip down the canal and to city farms just to encourage people to appreciate, especially young people, to appreciate the green spaces that are there around London and also to encourage them to perform in outdoor spaces. And with those projects in Glamis it's great to see the young people the development over a couple of years Um, I mean they're teenagers and their confidence self-expression has grown enormously and we've also heard from their teachers that their academic studies has improved enormously contrary to some of the parents worry that it would take them away from their academic studies. But now of course it's winter and we don't have a base ourselves. It's something we're looking for. So we're working back at Glamis, but rather than in the playground, because it's freezing, we're in the Glamis residence hall just across the way, which is part of the Glamis housing estate. It's quite an urban neighbourhood, hence the importance of the playground. And basically, at the end of the week, the young people will give a 
kind of cabaret pantomime performance based on Robin in the Hood. <laughs> but wait, what's the what's the date of that? Uh, that's going to well, we're starting in between Christmas and New Year's, and then we've got three days, second, third, and fourth in 2013, in which we will also take them to see the pantomime Robin Hood down in Greenwich, just across the Thames. Gareth Edwards, you're looking at the Transport Story of the Week, which is all about the completion of the Overground Circle. Yeah, we finally have the the completion of the London Overground, which is the kind of the orange bit that's going right around the edge of London these days. It's it's quite interesting. It's it's now all the way through to Clapham Junction. If you stand on a platform at Highbury and Islington, you can now go both ways to get to Clapham Junction, um, which is which, which is what we've all been looking for. Yes, which which is uh, which is yeah, which is the, the best thing since sliced bread. It's it's a marked change. I think anyone who's kind of lived in London their, their whole life uh, and certainly on the kind of the outskirts uh, probably has horrific memories of kind of those train services before they got taken over and, and turned orange, and they were pretty awful. Okay, could you? give us a flavor of what they used to be like uh well this was the the joyous days of a of of a a company called silverlink who used to run the trains back then and you 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 were kind of lucky if it actually turned up at all let alone whether it turned up on time uh i've always said that that anyone who who used to commute to buy silverlink services probably deserves some kind of medal yes I, i remember them the first time i got on a silverlink i remember it being like the scenes in 1980s thrillers set in new york where the the female uh, soon-to-be victim was in one of the tube carriages and the guy came in and they had to kind of get round all the seats and there were all the bars and it was very threatening lighting and uh, unpleasant seat covers. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty... I don't think that was the, the biggest of her concerns, <laughs> I, I've got to say. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty certain if you, if you kind of go and, go and dig out Warriors on DVD, there's at least one section where, where they're on the London Overground rather than the New York subway. But uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's these days, it's, it's one of the kind of the most... The, the, well, it's the most successful line uh, kind of national rail services in terms of performance at the moment and it's, it's much more pleasant generally isn't it though there's one long train through so there's, there's no individual carriages that are visible to the eye you can you can walk from one end of the train to the other yeah i mean they've, they've been very smart with it what they've done is effectively said that that what, what people want on those lines is they want something that's that's like the tube they want a tube like experience and and so the the trains have kind of uh, longitudinal seating now so they have seats down the sides not through the middle they're they're wide and open and more importantly they're they're every 15 minutes and that's kind of the the cutoff point where people stop looking at timetables and start just turning up at stations and that changes the way people behave and that's that's why passenger numbers have have gone through the roof and that's why that's why places like shadwell like like kind of dalston and all those kind of places are starting to pick up again because people can now go there on a night out and know they can they can just wander down to the station and get back again is is that um that's that's really important i think the 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 there's it's not the timetable but the fact that you don't need to worry about a timetable that that the fact that there's there's enough uh, there's enough trains per hour that takes away any kind of anxiety to say all oh, right we've really got to get going in order to make that collection to get get the next connection Yes, it is quite a horrific experience, isn't it, when you go out of London and you go to the bus stop and you realise it's a half an hour wait for the next bus. You think, this, 
this can't be right. And there are people listening in the countryside at the moment who are laughing at that. More than one bus on the same day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, f- 15 minutes is that, it's that magic number. I mean, it sounds really silly, but, but if you have a service every 16 minutes, people don't, p- people look at timetables. If you have a service every 14 minutes or 15 minutes, they don't. It really is a genuine kind of mental cutoff point. And I mean, the other big thing for the overground was that, and things like completing this Clapham Junction section, is it, is it brings train services back to areas that previously were very reliant on buses. Now, the, the irony is those buses were every three minutes. The buses were more reliable. But actually, there's something very physical about having a train line there. And the moment you put down tracks, people, people see it as more permanent. And that really does change areas. Where are the new uh, stations? What, what's been linked up here? Well, I mean, effectively what you've got is you've got a short s- stretch between Surrey Keys and, and Clapham Junction that's now kind of linked up. Now, so a lot of those stations had services before. You know, you, you're talking Wandsworth Road, Clapham High Street, Peckham Rye, places like that. But, but they did previously run into Victoria. And that is one of the, the kind of the downsides. Now they've lost some kind of connecting services to Victoria. Oh, but this is pretty serious for commuters then, is it? Um, it wasn't a particularly well-used line. Um, there's been a lot of protest, and, and it's rightful protest, because you, you don't want to lose a, a train service to a station when you're used to getting it for, for however long. Um, but, I mean, going forward, those trains will run into London Bridge after London Bridge has been redeveloped. So it, it will change people's commutes. Um, but, I mean, the Clapham Junction connection means that, that you've still got good connections, but they're just not the connections sometimes that some people who previously used the service would have been used to. Which, which could be a good thing to see above. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, it's time, it's time for another cracker moment, please, Mark Duncan. All right. Now, this is completely random, by the way, but I don't think it makes any difference. I mean, uh, what are two rows of cabbages called? A dual cabbage way. There's plenty more where that came from, folks. Do you want, another, you want to do another one, don't you? I can see that look in your eye. What did the policeman say to his stomach? You're under a vest. <laughs> where are we going next? We should, we should um, dig into some of the stories here. What have we got? Oh, bombs. There's a bomb map. Alan, what are we looking at here? I can see a strand there, and there's pictures of bombs all over it. What are we looking at? Well, I think I was given this story because to show my age... Having lived through the Blitz, <clears throat> um, I've been given this, this story on somebody, which is very interesting, um, has drawn a map showing the site of every um, bomb that dropped between September 1940 and June 1941. So, so essentially you've been, you know, Alan, you went through hell. Here's a reminder. That, that's what this story does. I went through a very comfortable war. It hardly affected me at all. Um, the only bomb I uh, really saw was one that fell near the back garden and uh, the windows went. But apart from that, um, I had a very happy and relaxed school days. Where, whereabouts were you at that time? Uh, in Southgate in North London. Oh, right, so still in the thick of it, because South, Southgate got bombed, certainly. Oh, Southgate did, but the bit on um, which, well, which my hill where I was, was... Comparatively free. So what do you think then, looking at, uh, at this, is this a useful addition to our knowledge? I think it's useful for historians. I don't know if a lot of people would be that interested if they haven't lived through it. Uh, it is a specialised area in a way, but it is interesting for people of my era to, as a memorial, as a memory of where these did fall and the effect it had on us. And especially as it's this particular map is supplemented with eyewitness testimonies hmm. drawn from the BBC archives. 
as well as photographs, so you can really almost live the experience. I watched a fascinating oral history series of recordings, people who were, I think, in the Isle of Dogs, and they were talking about the experience of being bombed, and it's it's quite remarkable. And what, what one always finds with those things is how everyone takes it in their stride. You had a bomb fall near you. You, you seem uh, r- remarkably calm about that whole uh, idea, and, and that's, that's, it's that resilience and that composure that always strikes me. Well, I was also thinking, um, in um, various parts of London, you're walking along a street... And uh, and the street numbers just go sort of, you know, 46, 44, 42, then a space, and then it goes 38, 36. And um, I, I would usually assume if they're old houses that they probably did get bombed and those and that part of the street didn't get built, built up. But I think it, it might be... Uh, I think it might be interesting for people to know where the missing houses are and and why they're why the spaces are there. Is it that they just uh, fell fell down through dilapidation, or, or or did they actually get get bombed? I mean, one of the interesting things looking at it. I mean, we covered uh, this a bit because it's it still has an effect today. Um, Crossrail, of course, are building big kind of railway beneath London at the moment, and they actually have their own unexploded ordnance team because they still have to look for these things. Because you know, in, in the same way as the, in the fields of Belgium, farmers still dig up kind of old shell cases from the First World War. If you build a big bu- building in London, when you dig the foundations, there is a chance you're going to dig something up. And the records are good, but they're not they're not perfect. So there, there's something kind of very does not compute about about being sat in a van with guys. Kind kind of surveying land in kind of the East End or, or Docklands where they're building railways with guys who up until kind of six months ago were British Army and were surveying for mines or bombs in, in Iraq. You know. There was one that was found not so long ago, wasn't there? There was an Olympic one. Um, I forget which year. I think it was about 2008. It was Bromley by Bow, and they, un- they unearthed a 1,000 kilo German kind of bomb, um, which, which no doubt had uh, stopped a few hearts. I mean, no one, no one has died in London from, from unexploded bombs since the war Um, it's not generally the unexploded bombs that kill people well there's there's a yeah you've been reading the the cracker jokes again um that uh, well i mean you say that that there's a there's a rather kind of sad irony which which is that the germans were very good at building bombs which meant their bombs tended to go off um, sadly, the same isn't actually true for the British and the Americans. The, the uh, German cities like Dresden and Hamburg got really heavily bombed as well and have the same problem. But because we didn't build our bombs as well, there's a lot more unexploded ordnance under, under German cities and they have to worry about it more. And they, they, they have actually been people who kind of died post-war from our bombs, whereas no one's died from, from their bombs here. I mean, German engineering kind of ironically at its best has done us better than, than other cities. I want to gauge your interest. You specialise, of course, through London Rig connections in trains you seem to know a lot about explosives um, well i mean my original training was a military historian um i kind of which i think basically qualifies you to either write books or write for the daily mail uh, I'm, I'm not i'm and neither really appealed to me so kind of transport journalism was 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 the alternative because at least then you get to talk about steam trains but yes so so yeah military history uh, pops up uh, in in that regard as well the uh, clock tells me it's that time again what does a vampire have for breakfast ready neck <laughs> What fish sleep a lot? Kippers. <laughs> well, I think that was a new low. 
there's a big picture of a black taxi's light over there in front of you, Tom Miles. What, what is the story related to that? The story here is that uh, Transport for London have uh, approved a plan for advertising funding Wi-Fi in black cabs. So uh, the passenger of a, of a cabbie sits in the back and uh, they can access the internet uh, on Wi-Fi um, but the the downside is every 15 minutes there's going to be a 15 second advert i wonder if it's really i i mean if 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 i'm in a cab then i would have thought that i can i can just sort of um, I, I don't really need wi-fi at, at that time i would have thought that the the, the mo- usual mobile phone uh anyway if you if you're downloading a, a a kind of article in the newspaper or something then 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 you can just be be reading that for the duration of the cab cab journey. Yes, so I suppose it presupposes that you're going to be using high volumes of data in the cab. It doesn't ring true in my ears. That's what Starbucks is for. No, I mean I think I think the the <laughs> the, t- the, the 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 reading reading text as you would read a, a newspaper. I would have thought that the perfect time for that would be while you're sitting sitting in a cab. I mean, well, I mean, I suppose presumably at least it means you can stream a BBC station rather than having to listen to Talksport. But I mean, that that's the only real advantage I can see to it. There is actually a connection here between that and our question of the week which went out on Facebook we called upon all armchair inventors we asked what gadgets widgets or apps London might be in need of that don't already exist and uh, we had a few responses here any of these take your interest Alan I don't have a smartphone I've got a mobile phone that does great things like sending like telephone calls and sending texts Um, so I I can't, it doesn't really apply to me. One I like here is from Colin Hode, uh, which is uh, anti-gravity boots for crossing the Thames. This is, that's a very hodish contribution, I've got to say. Thank you, Colin. Gareth? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that, that Mark Watson here has kind of uh, suggested some kind of smartphone uh, app to, to electrocute people who stand on the wrong side of escalators, um, which, which I think, whilst not wanting to condone violence, I think I heartily approve of. Um, I'm a bit disturbed by this. We've got Mark Watson at the top wanting to electrocute them. And then we go to Chris Yate. Now, Chris, we need to talk, I, I suspect. Uh, could we have Chris's suggestions, please, Tom? Uh, Chris's one is the pavements that tip sideways when necessary to throw slow walkers into the road. Uh, And then another one, which is a stinger barrier at red lights. Weight activated pits under advanced cycle stop lines to dispose of errant taxis. Oh, we're back to taxis again. (laughs) It seems to be about um, this sense of fair play. I think everybody feels that that there's a there's a certain way to behave and that people people should should obey these these little rules and uh, we can rather than than have actually policing them you could have an app that 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 sort of keeps people on the straight and narrow but it seems does seem a little bit um uh, it does seem to go into a lot of detail about things things <laughs> yes. that, that, can, that can kind of irritate people i think what's interesting with with kind of those ones with the escalators with kind of tipping pavements and all of that is that they're actually not very london specific i'm reasonably certain if you went to new york and posted this exact same question you'd get exactly the same answers so whilst they are kind of local customs i actually think they're kind of city customs more than anything else they're not local customs to tip people into the street that's not a custom <laughs> don't make it into a thing uh, only because we haven't started doing it yet oh, no. <laughs> oh well i'm gonna get uh, do, uh, to, as, as a londoner i'm gonna sort of talk about one bugbear uh, which gets me which is people who put their who put their cup of coffee on the seat 
next to them uh, and then accidentally sort of tip it over and don't and and just walk away so so then you've got a seat which is just sort of impregnate impregnated with with cold coffee and I, I feel that that you know, as well as the sort of signs about keeping your feet off the seat, keeping keeping liquid coffee off the seat would be be a, a start as well. I suppose my bugbear is um, mainly uh, shopping in supermarkets. I reckon there should be a a pit that opens up under under people if they take too long at the cashiers getting their money out, going back to get something else that they've forgotten. Um, taking their time generally, um, wasting everybody else's time, and then just looking absolutely blank and toddling off, and then coming back because they've forgotten their receipt or something like that. Well, the answer is obviously a three-day working week. For... <laughs> Sorry, where did that come from? <laughs> because we're all too hassled and all too running around the city and expecting everyone else to be as hassled as we are. So, so low, low productivity is the answer to all of it. Or Christmas cracker jokes, and I have some more topical Christmas cracker <laughs> jokes um, to do with transport. Would you like to hear them? So what kind of a car does a lady in a pantomime drive? Can we actually see if we can guess this one? They, they've all seemed pretty guessable. Lady, really? What kind of car? Lady in a pantomime... Um Daimler. Well done, Alan. Okay, um, what was the first motorised vegetable? First motorised vegetable. Cabbage. Indeed, the horseless cabbage. Um, where can you buy British Rail bubblegum? Come on. No, no idea. No. 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 On a choo-choo train. Oh. And last one before you, before you die. Where in a jungle is it not safe to park? On a double yellow lion. <laughs> I'm going to write that one down, though. <laughs> this is far too intellectual for me. I'm sorry. Well, returning to uh, the, the point that I, we, we sprang into uh, apps and inventions and seemed to get sidetracked into uh, murder, essentially, and, and griping about that. It never fails to amaze me how easily London's can be made to gripe. But... There was a suggestion here which I thought was quite an interesting one. Florian Kruger says, I agree with free Wi-Fi. It would be super easy to create a network of networks that is self-extending and self-managing and provides the basic right of education in a digital way to every person in London. It would make us stand out as a city big time and therefore would be one of the best marketing campaigns ever. And a few other people have said uh, free Wi-Fi, but none, none so elegantly as Florian there. What, what do you think of that? It's, uh, I'm particularly interested in the idea that, that internet is a basic right of education. Well, I think especially at the moment, because certain governments are trying to place more controls on the internet. So this kind of idea gains even more importance in the face of that. That something that makes it more egalitarian and more just generally useful for everyone i think it's very important especially in in uh, museums and heritage um because because these uh these objects tell us something and they do uh, belong to everyone i mean they're for everybody to enjoy uh but they're also very delicate they can be very fragile uh they can be very difficult to actually look at quickly so having digitization projects means that people can actually look at look at things uh quickly 
And if you think about the physical process, if you wanted to sort of um, say look at look at uh, various different um, various different uh, well London transport museums, you know various various different. Uh, types of tubes and trams you know how difficult that would be to see physically whereas on online it's 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 really easy in a way this is an extension of that very noble and positive london feature which is the free museum so by extending free wi-fi to everybody it would be free virtual access i think there is one one danger or not really a danger but something that's worth being aware of with this which is that I think the more information people have is great, but what it also puts onto the schools, onto, onto education systems, is, is the need to teach people how to read sources. Um, because suddenly when you're flooded with information, you, you don't necessarily know what the intentions are of, of the person who's writing that. And, and being able to filter all that information down into something useful becomes a far, far more important skill than perhaps it was, it was kind of 10 years ago when, when, when we were far more kind of guided in our reading and our, and, and our material. Objects in museums, libraries, archives, they're, they're, they're still not available enough there there's there's a long way to go and uh i think it it still hasn't been incorporated educationally enough yet i mean it's 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 getting there that's very interesting we were talking to uh, paolo viscardi at the horniman on last week's show and he was saying that the exhibits on display are in fact a tiny tiny proportion of what's in storage and for reasons of space quite understandably for maintenance they can't display it all so you you, you say you've been working on digitization projects for a number of heritage institutions is part of that exploring the the kind of the hidden uh, artifacts of an institution or um, how does it work well as well as um, one one museum it's actually uh, different different museums and how they're they're connected up um for example, a hundred years ago, uh, the uh, anthropologists and musicologists went off to far-flung places with their their edophones and recorded a whole lot of um, music on wax cylinders. Um, deposited all those wax cylinders in one one uh, in the the uh, sound archive. Uh, deposited all the artifacts in, say, the Pitt Rivers Museum or the the Horniman Museum, and and uh, wrote books and deposited photographs elsewhere. So, a uh, hundred years later, all those objects are, are are starting to kind of make connections back with each other. So you can see how they're how how they're connected up. We should come back to the the objects themselves actually there was one beautiful piece uh, amongst the other they're, they're all, all very beautiful uh, but, but this one really took the uh, took the prize in my mind and it's the one in the seashell box a very ornate piece you've got a giant seashell that you're just bringing up onto the table here alan yeah in fact it's uh, made in it was made in italy it was made by monte grappa and it's called the aphrodite um the shell case is obviously the reference to aphrodite Venus as she was born out of a seashell. Uh, the pen itself is is made is got a black material, but there's mother of pearl and um, silver chasings, uh, which include four figures showing Aphrodite, the birth of Aphrodite, and uh, it has a pearl at the at the bottom coming out of the shell as well. And what's the provenance of this item? How did it come to be in your hands? 
No, it was simply that I was collecting fountain pens for the collection, and I had all the old ones, um, not all the old ones, but a good selection of early ones, and I thought I wanted something a bit more impressive uh, for the collection, and this was the the noblest and the the most sort of uh, outrageous one that was on the market at the time. Have you actually tried writing with all of these pens? With this one, no. With the early ones, I have just to for research and for I'd write thing articles and things I've written for books. But no, the modern one, no, this one I haven't. I uh, thought I'd keep it pristine, almost as an investment originally. Yes, it's like those toys that you, you mustn't take out of their that's box the or something. Sort of, yeah, that's the sort of thing. Yeah, paleography, which is is what you lecture in um, yes. here, I think. Yes. What could you tell us that we most certainly would not suspect about the history of writing? I suppose, really, that um, it goes back far further than people think. Most people think it started possibly with the Romans or the Greeks and before then, or, and the Egyptians, um, and they invented it. But, uh, no, it does go way back. And you were mentioning that there are some forms of writing that remain... Well, this, was my, this was what I was surprised about. I, I thought yeah. there was like one type of handwriting that people hadn't yet worked out how to decipher, but, in fact, there's quite a few... Uh, scripts out there that are uh, inexplicable at the moment oh there are many scripts in fact um there's one that has just been deciphered called proto elamite um but the ones that haven't been deciphered are things like the indus valley script from from northern or from northern india from the indus valley obviously um and there's a manuscript for called the voynich manuscript which uh, a friend of mine is been researching and trying to decipher for many years. It's one of these things and the Phaistos disc from Crete. Um, none of these have been deciphered. People have been trying for donkey's years, but without success. So there's a long way to go. I mean, presumably it must be kind of like cryptography. It must be like code breaking with these things where, I mean, I'm guessing you, you need like a really large sample of the writing to be able to start making guesses at things, do you? I'm quite certain I heard that Bletchley Park got involved or, or staff from Bletchley Park got involved in one of these uh, attempts to crack a, a handwriting. Yeah, I think they have done, but um, that's the thing about Indus Valley. Their writing only appears on seals and there's only four or five letters or characters on each seal. So uh, you need, as you were saying, you do need a whole lot to get to the basic idea and code code ecology is the great basis of decipherment okay westminster council is always good for a controversial story particularly where homelessness is concerned it's either parking violations or homelessness and we've got another story this week from uh, westminster council What, what are their priorities this week mark duncan well um i'm going to talk a little about homeless families um westminster council does top the list with homeless families in temporary accommodation, short-term accommodation. Um, But many other boroughs also have a very high percentage. It's usually a six-week limit for uh, homeless families to be in B&B accommodation, but often it's turning out to be much longer. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of people would like to nip off to a nice B&B in the countryside, but it's not like that at all. It's the opposite, because a lot of these B&Bs have appalling conditions, it seems. Um, damp or security issues, vermin, fire hazards, cramped conditions, etc. So not a nice place to spend your family Christmas. And according to statistics, um, there's f- 
presently 57,000 children who will be homeless this Christmas. Um, so it's a big issue in London. Uh, the capital's rents um, have risen by a third in three years. They were pretty high already three years ago. Now they're very high. Um, plus, as many people will know, housing benefit caps combined with these rising rents have, have led to a, to a lot of low income and families being made homeless and unable to afford accommodation and some London boroughs are even suggesting or moving families not just to another borough but to another city. Yes, uh, far up north as well away from uh, from friends and family. Indeed, I couldn't actually believe that when I heard that um, a few months ago um, but yes, it's a fact. Um, yeah, with councils uh, selling off a lot of social housing um, and maybe it's just ironic of course because Westminster is where the House of Parliament is um, Houses of Parliament but um, as I said before Westminster tops the list um, with homeless families this Christmas 134 families I think that are over the period allotted so Westminster's got that situation going on there and uh, what is Westminster Council doing? Well, they're having a crackdown on rare and medium rare burgers. Uh, very, very important. <laughs> um, Westminster City Council is taking action over the freedom to choose how your burger is done with other local authorities expected to follow suit. Uh, and there's a number of sort of celebrity chefs uh, who are being uh, asked how they offer their burgers. And uh, the danger is if they're served, if uh, burgers are served rare, um, then uh, they're, 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 well, I mean, there's uh, uh, Professor Hugh Pennington, who's a top expert on E. coli, uh, has uh, outlined apparently that uh, rare minced meat that is not correctly cooked and prepared can kill. So um, I, I actually didn't, I don't think I've ever been asked how whether i want my burger to be rare or medium rare i've never been given the choice i just sort of get this burger and then you cut into it and then you find out uh find out what the deal is really certainly at wendy's nobody's ever consulted me (laughs) (laughs) no i know i mean way back it used to be basic you'd have to sort of fit fit round how the how the chain was able to to manage their demand and supply and if if they were rushed then uh you'd get a very sort of gooey gungy bit in the middle of the burger <laughs> yes. uh, and if if they if they had plenty of time then um or or they didn't have very much custom then you'd get a sort of a gnarled and dried out uh, burger that had been sitting on the on the counter for a couple of hours i should imagine that still goes on i can't quite work out why they're targeting these upper end Chefs, that seems a strange place to start, unless the food inspectors are there uh, chewing on a, you know, sitting in a celebrity chef's restaurant, munching and savouring the flavour. Oh, yes, this is definitely undercooked. Let me just take another mouthful to be sure this. Oh, no, that's definitely undercooked. Reminds me of the Olympics when uh, local burger traders were banned from selling because, of course, our main sponsor was McDonald's. We've got a fantastic sponsor. We've got audible.co.uk. 
Audible is offering you a free digital audiobook, as you'll be well aware. And if, you, if you've heard this message before from me, and you haven't signed up for your free digital audiobook, what's going on in your head? You know, you like speech, you like listening to stuff, this is what they uh, purvey, and you can get a free digital audiobook from their catalogue of 60,000 audiobooks uh, if you take up a special 30-day free trial of the Audible service. And uh, if you cancel, you still keep the free book, and you can burn it to your uh, CD, you can put it on your MP3 player or your iPhone, or, or whatever, and it's yours to keep whatever happens uh, about that uh, subscription. Subscription's pretty cheap as well. I sign up to that and uh, enjoy a free audiobook every month. Uh, to get your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. Well, we're in the uh, the closing. We're in the home straight of the show. Now, I've got some questions to ask you in our historical quiz that you may or may not have been anticipating. You were anticipating. <laughs> Mark? Historical or general knowledge? It's historical. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I don't think I'm going to win. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's one question before that that I want to ask, which is to you, Alan. What's your wife got against Paraguay? Um... It's too far away, the uh, the flight's too long, and, uh, well, that's it, basically. I'm, I'm a bit confused, you see, because before we started recording, you mentioned that you've been to every country bar three, and, and when you talked about Paraguay, I rather got the impression that you, you've uh, flown over it, flown past it, but your wife's not happy about going to Paraguay. What's, what's going on? <laughs> I think it's one of those countries where you don't really hear a lot about, and there isn't a lot to, to know about it in a way. It seems uh, a country that's always been there. But uh, you don't really hear about it a lot. And I think it's mainly the flights to go there and wonder what to do once we get there. Well, suggestions, please. What should, what should Alan do in Paraguay? That, that sounds like a TV show. <laughs> Have you been, you're very well-travelled, Mark, aren't you? Yeah, I've been living in Brazil quite a lot the last couple of years, in São Paulo. What, what's taken you there? Love. Oh. Um, it's because your partner's Brazilian, I remember now That's correct, yes Yeah, I mean, Sao Paulo is the third biggest city in the world 25 million High rises everywhere But they don't necessarily have the reputation of high rises here Which is often associated with poverty Not always Lifts that don't work, etc um, They're often very much sought after And a good solution to a high population And they have gardens, lots of trees Lots of artistic murals and things like that. And, of course, security is quite paramount there as well. Um, well you're in a good position as well, I suspect, to, 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 to evaluate it. You've been to uh, throughout the UK, New Zealand, Indonesia, Mexico, Korea, China and Brazil, to name but a few, with your, with your various uh, interests. Dragonfly, Mime Theatre, X Moves, The Base, Dance Company and Faceless Co. Faceless Co as well as Cornucopia. You're a busy man these days. Yeah, well, I'd like to be doing more travelling, but the focus with Cornucopia, as I mentioned earlier, has been on London projects, um, working specifically with Tower Hamlets Council. So it's it's more that idea of working locally, but thinking globally. Okay, well, we'll, we'll get to details on, on all of those and on uh, London Reconnections and on digitised artefacts and so forth, the Museum of Writing, of course. But first, the all-important historical quiz... Uh, how many historians do we have amongst us? Who Who is actually a, an historian here? It's Gareth Edwards. Right. There's quite a lot of history here. So, you know, you say to someone, oh, I'm, I'm a historian, and they go, oh, do you know about this thing that happened in 372 BC? And you go, no, there's quite a lot of it. 
I heard about somebody who went to America, a Londoner who went to America, and uh, she she told an American in a bar or something, oh, I've come from England, and he said, oh, you must know my Aunt Anne, she lives in Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> there goes our American listenership, sorry guys. Okay, so five questions, it's uh, the past week in London's history, Monday the 3rd of December, 19. 19- 52. We're looking for the identity of this person who was born in Chiswick. He would become a successful comic performer and writer, known for his involvement in late 70s and 80s shows, in particular, not the 9 o'clock news. Rowan Atkinson. Not Rowan Atkinson. And alas, Smith and Jones. Mel Smith. Mel Smith. Mel Smith. Mel Smith. Yeah, it, well, that's a definite Mark Duncan, uh, a Mark Duncan point there. Tuesday, the 4th of December, 1882. Which legal institution is opened by Queen Victoria? Victoria and Albert Museum. Legal institution. Oh, legal. I mean, that is legally an institution. It is legally but an institution. Yeah. One, of the, one of the Crown Courts? Uh, Royal, Royal Courts of Justice. Yeah. It's the Royal Courts of Justice. Now, who got, were you slightly ahead there, Gareth? Well, I'm, I'm, claim vic- I'm claiming victory on that. I th- I will th- see, this is recorded, so I don't... <laughs> One, one point each. Yeah, it's fair, isn't no, it? Fair. Well, it's only fair if you were first. What? We are talking about the Royal Courts of Justice, after <laughs> all. <laughs> How should I split this up? I don't know. I, th- I thought Gareth came in first. I, th- I set up the goal, you know. I sort of set up the goal, and one, one of them were able to Points head it in. You know. yeah. I think the judgment of Solomon to give it to me because I didn't say anything. <laughs> Do you know what I was about to until you said that? <laughs> one point to Gareth. Time will tell whether I made the right decision or not. Uh, Wednesday, the 5th of December, 1905. Part of the roof of which London station collapses, killing six people? It's a train question. St Pancras? No. Uh, the Euston? No. King's Cross? No. Fenchurch? Not Fenchurch. Waterloo? Waterloo. No. Marrow the Bone? We're running out of terminals. Liverpool Victoria? Street. Liverpool Street. Victoria? London Bridge? Clapham Bridge? <laughs> Crikey, really? Yeah. No, I really should know that, but I don't. Uh, there's Blackfriars. 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 Black there's, there's still one you haven't got. Cannon Street. It's not Cannon Street. Oh, Charing Cross. <laughs> it's Charing Cross. Oh, yes, well, I'm, I'm relieved that you got that in it. Uh, Thursday, the 6th of December, 1983. Britain's first instance of a particular kind of surgery takes place at Harefield Hospital in Uxbridge, West London. The operation goes well, but sadly... The patient would die 13 days later. What sort of operation was it that was carried out? Brain. Brain. Heart transplant. It was, it was a heart transplant, but it was a bit more than just that. It was a heart uh, and... Lung. It was a heart and lung transplant. I'm going to go one point each for that. Gareth sitting pretty on three. Uh, to be fair, I think, I think, I think Adam was, uh, was kicking in with heart to begin no, with. No, no, no. Oh, I said heart, but I wouldn't have got the, the lung bit, no. Oh, right. So a point, he, he gets, points all around. heart point, I think. Uh, Alan gets my heart points, I think. This, sure. this is very generous. Yeah, uh, generous apart from Mark, who's been clambering after every point he possibly get. <laughs> uh, okay, so what, what, oh, where's the... This is too modern for me. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you've got one, haven't you? I've definitely got one. What have you got one for? Uh, first question. <laughs> right. 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 You've got uh, a disputed Cross. one. I've got Charing Cross <laughs> and the Royal Courts. Yes, or did you get the royal courts? Well, well, did I? Didn't I? This is this is, this is only only the replay will show. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's let's do this. Okay. So uh, we, this may or may not be the score at this stage. We may have one for Alan, three for Gareth. Two. It's gone down to two for Gareth, seven for Tom, and Mark doing very nicely on fourteen. 
Friday, the 7th of December, 1732, the Theatre Royal Covent Garden is opened. It would later become known as what? Coliseum. Nope. Royal Opera House. It's the Royal Opera House, yes, another one for Tom there, fantastic. Which, which may mean, depending on, whether, on what the hell the score is, that you two have got two each. Yes. Which puts you in joint lead, which means I think that we need a tiebreaker. What better tiebreaker could we have than trying to guess the answer to Mark Duncan's Christmas cracker joke? Why did the hedgehog cross the road? I, I don't know. He needed uh, uh, he needed to 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 spike the next story. I <laughs> Can you edit that? Slightly out, peculiar. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't work. But it's it's more than Gareth contributing. No, yeah, I don't. I, think, I, I, I don't think that we're going to. Idea on that one. Okay. What's the... Drum roll. <laughs> to see his flatmate. Oh yeah. Oh, cool. Well, we need another one. Okay. okay. Which country has the largest appetite? Hungary. Well, that was Gareth Edwards yeah. by a mile. Yes, it was indeed Hungary. And we end on a a minor key. <laughs> Uh, Gareth, before we go, I think you've got a cracker joke for us as well. Yeah, well, it's, it's in the right tone. I mean, it's sadly a joke that I suspect only people who, who listen to, to kind of music in the 90s will get, but which is, uh, uh, why couldn't the lion find the tiger? Because jungle is massive. On which note, we leave you for this week. Um, thank you for hosting us here at the Museum of Writing, Tom Miles and Alan Cole. And thank you for, uh, as well, giving us a, a tour of fountain pens through the ages and, uh, and nibs and quills and so forth. Um, and thank you as well, Mark Duncan and Gareth Edwards Stroke John Ball for joining us. Where can people find out more about you and your endeavours? Tom Miles. Twitter is uh, at Museum of Writing. And, and our blog, which is uh, Museum of Writing as well. Mark Duncan. www.cornucopiatheatre.com Gareth Edwards. And um, we're at londonreconnections.com for uh, uh, news and history about the underground. We've just put our Christmas quiz up, which should be pretty challenging, I think. Do you, do you tweet as well? Uh, yes, um, I'm at Garius, which is G-A-R-I-U-S. And uh, Alan Cole. Um, on the same blog as Tom Miles, to be honest, um, at the Institute of English Studies. And what have you been blogging recently? It mainly is odd letters and, and quirky things, trying for people to guess what they are. Fantastic. All oh, right. OK, so we're, we're quiz heavy then. Yeah. Yeah. Good. OK, well, uh, thanks very much, all of you, for being here today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. That's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Mark Duncan, Gareth Edwards, Alan Cole and Tom Miles. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig, Rhea Heath and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson and I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.